Let's pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Last week, we began a series called Life in the Spirit, and for the next couple months, we're going to be looking at this third member of the Trinity and coming to a better understanding of how to live into the calling that, that we have, which is to live life in the Spirit. Pastor Paul took some time last week to look at some of the different names for the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John, the the promised one, the advocate. And he invited us to make space each and every day to pray, come, Holy Spirit, come. I'm not sure what your exposure is to the Holy Spirit, what traditions and, and experiences you might have, but my guess is that a lot of you here feel a little bit deficient in your understanding of the Holy Spirit just like I do. So in the weeks to come, we're going to be looking at various elements of life with the Holy Spirit to to, uh, aid in our understanding, and today we're going to study what the Apostle Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. I'm indebted to the work of Christopher Wright in his highly accessible book, Cultivating the Fruit of the Spirit, which I recommend for every one of you so that you can dig a little deeper into them. He begins his survey of the fruit of the Spirit by offering a prayer from the Anglican pastor and and author John Stott. This was his daily prayer when he woke up every morning. I just want to read it for you. It's up on the screen. Heavenly Father, I pray that this day I might live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I might take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I hope that as you read that, that that prayer does something for you. Spirit, come and, and ripen. Let your fruit ripen in my life. This is a prayer that's obviously informed by the Apostle Paul's mention of the fruit of the Spirit, which only occurs once in Scripture, Galatians chapter 5. The list of the fruit of the Spirit, all nine elements, are nothing less, really, than the characteristics of Jesus Christ himself. And Stott's desire for the fruit of the Spirit to ripen in his life is another way of saying, Spirit, help me become more like Jesus in my life. Help my life to reflect more the person I'm following, Jesus Christ. Jesus was filled fully with the Spirit in his life. And if we are living life in the Spirit, that is the very Spirit of Jesus Christ himself, then it stands to reason that our lives would increasingly resemble Jesus' life. Many studies of the fruit fruit of the Spirit focus on the nature of these nine characteristics of fruit-bearing. And we could easily spend nine weeks... uh, here going through uh, those and unpacking them. I have a pastor friend here not far away who led his church through a study of the fruit of the Spirit for an entire year in their church. We don't have a year to do it. We have a Sunday. So what we're going to do instead is look at the context and the background of Galatians and particularly Galatians 5 to understand what Paul is trying to communicate by bringing forth this idea of the fruit of the Spirit. We read in Acts chapter 13 and 14 that Several towns in the region of Galatia, Galatia is not a town, it's a region, 
But they had responded favorably to Paul's message among them when he came and, and he told them about Jesus. And many of them chose to follow this Jesus of Nazareth as Lord and Savior. These new believers were Gentiles. They weren't Jews, so they didn't really have any knowledge of the Old Testament. So Paul gives them sort of a broad understanding of the story of God from creation to Abraham to Moses and the law all the way to Jesus. But it's clear that something happened between the time when Paul was with these believers, leading them to Jesus and, and planting churches among them, and then the time when he wrote this letter. Something happened. Other Jews had come in with a different message than Paul, a competing message. Jews that were Christ followers, likely, just like Paul was. But unlike Paul, they didn't think that faith in Jesus was enough for salvation. No, they said, if these Galatian Gentiles wanted the blessings and the promises of Abraham, they must become Jewish. They must become circumcised. They must follow the laws of Moses, particularly strict laws about the Sabbath and, and food laws and cleanliness laws. And if you've ever read the book of Galatians, you know that Paul reacts strongly to this, as strongly as we see him respond in any of his other writings. He insists that Christ is all that these young believers need. Our salvation comes through faith in God's promise, just as it did for Abraham. The law of Moses had its, its right and proper function, but now the Messiah has come. So the blessings of Abraham are open to anyone through faith in Jesus Christ. Believers in Jesus are freed from the obligation to live under the disciplinary authority of the Old Testament law. There's no place in the Christian life for such legalism. This is not to say that the Old Testament law is a form of legalism. Far from it. It's absolutely not. It's founded on grace and love and a call to relationship with God, but it clearly can be distorted into legalism, which is what these Jews were doing. That the keeping of these laws is really what it means to live a Christian life. It's really what matters. So as you read Paul, you, you sense frustration with this legalism. It's pretty obvious. But then it's almost as if he's anticipating what the next potential problem is going to be for these believers. He says the answer to this legalism is not to swing too far the other way, believing that since you're not under the law, that you can do whatever you please and indulge in any desire that you want. So he addresses this as well, and, and in doing so, he sets up two primary dangers for the Galatians. Legalism on the one hand, and license on the other. Keeping all the rules, or rejecting every rule. Both are dangerous, and both are something less than life in the Spirit. I don't know what your church experience is, but I, I see these extremes in our churches today, in many churches today. There are lots of legalistic churches, churches that attach a lot of rules to faith, with everything needing to be strict and clear to be part of a community of faith. On the other hand, there are a lot of churches that I would call like churches of license, places that don't have any room for concepts like discipline or obedience, places that ignore the traditions of faith and seek to free themselves from the burden of institutionalized religion. Paul, in Galatians, sets up both these extremes, both of which fall short of life in the Spirit. So in Galatians chapter 5, he shows us a third way, a better way, the truly Christian way to live our lives. He starts chapter 5 by affirming the freedom that Christ gives. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm, therefore. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery, slavery to the law. But then almost immediately, he insists that being free doesn't give us license to indulge in our sinful natures. In verse 13, he says, You, brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. And at last, Paul comes to his big point. If we're not governed by legalism or we're not governed by license, then then what should govern how we live? And Paul's answer is the Spirit. In verse 16, live by the Spirit. This is the heart and soul of Christian living. And if we allow the Spirit to govern the way that we live, we're going to avoid the extremes of legalism and license. In verses 19 through 21, Paul lists the obvious acts of flesh that are in contrast to the Spirit. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I I read them quickly because I just want to get through them, right? He says, I'm warning you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then, in dazzling contrast, we get the heart of this text in verse 22. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is, and this is where we get to slow down, right? I'm going to slow down the reading. I love, all of our readers this morning did that, just slowed it down. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let's notice what what first this text is, is not. It's not a list of virtues that are meant to match the list of vices in verses 19 through 21. Often in Greek literature, you'll see that where a list of virtues are pitted against a list of vices and they kind of match. But that's not Paul's intent here. Nor is Paul giving us a list of rules as if to say, you don't have to follow the Old Testament laws anymore. Instead, follow this much easier set of rules. That's not Paul's message either. The power of Paul's list here is the metaphor that he uses. The metaphor of fruit. These nine beautiful characteristics, they're they're easy to separate, and we ought to dig into those and really understand what they mean in our lives. But Paul uses the singular fruit of the Spirit, not fruits of the Spirit, to describe them all. It's a brilliant metaphor because fruit is the product of life. If a tree is alive, it's going to produce some kind of fruit. It was created and designed to do that. So when a tree has life inside of it, you will get fruit from that tree. A tree doesn't bear fruit from carefully following the laws of nature or by trying harder. Paul is saying that life in the spirit is going to produce this type of fruit in our lives. Even more poignantly, if we invite the spirit of Jesus Christ to to take over our lives and we don't fight it, the spirit will make these qualities grow in our lives and, and our lives are going to grow more and more towards Christ's likeness, which is God's desire for all of his children. By cultivating the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, we move towards Christ's likeness. When I first learned about the fruit of the Spirit, I, I learned it in uh, children's church or VBS at my church. It was a simple song that I've even used with the kids here at church. 
But the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if you sing it enough, it'll be stuck in your brain forever, I guarantee you. But I think when I learned that, I was, I, I was thinking of it as akin to Paul's list of spiritual gifts that show up various times in his letters, where I would sift through and, and try and discern which gifts God had given me and which ones he clearly had not given me. But we shouldn't think of the fruit of the Spirit in that way. It's fruit singular, remember, not fruits of the Spirit. They cluster together as a single fruit. Think of it as a super fruit, if you will. It's not a menu where we get to select certain parts of this and go, oh, that's, that's, what, that's what I really care about, but I don't really care about these. They combine together to create this beautiful, attractive, irresistible fruit. Um, I enjoy cooking a lot at home. Uh, it's, it's, it's a hobby of mine. I, sometimes it's therapy just to cook. I love it. I don't typically cook from recipes, but rather my own desire to create the perfect bite. Can anybody relate to this? I mean, that's really what I want. I want the perfect bite. I think some of you can relate to this even as you go to, to lunch today. If you go out somewhere, you look at your plate and you go, how can I create the perfect bite on this plate? So I'm constantly trying to create dishes that give me an opportunity for the perfect bite. I've done some reading and research on the science of this. Uh, Doug Peckinpah has helped me a ton with this. There are five primary taste sensations that our taste buds are made to experience, created to experience. Uh, some of you know what they are. Sweetness, sourness, saltiness, bitterness, and then the elusive one, the fifth one, is called umami, which is the Japanese term for fibrous, meaty, savory, fatty, and that's, that's some of our favorites, right? So I've started to consider these tastes in my dishes. When you can combine them all, you've got the perfect bite. So I, I hope you're not too hungry because I want to offer you just a few examples of foods that I consider to be perfectly balanced. Hopefully this won't take you away from the sermon today, but um, a breakfast sandwich with a runny egg. That's perfect at home. Greek lemon chicken soup. Can you taste it? That bitterness, and it's just wonderful. And I, I think the king of them all is the Chinese pork dumpling. These are the most satisfying foods for me. It doesn't mean that I don't appreciate one-dimensional foods, by the way. If you give me chocolate cake, I will probably eat it. Uh, I can eat a brown olive, which is basically just like eating salt, right? I like limes. I like asparagus. These are things that I like. But if you serve me any of these as the main course, I'm probably going to walk away from that meal feeling a little unsatisfied, right? But if you take the sweet rice flour and make a dough out of it, and then you fill it with that salty broth, and then, and then sour vinegar and bitter ginger and that umami pork and chives, and you make a dumpling, that's exciting, and that's memorable, and that's compelling. So like John Stott's prayer, Spirit, cause your fruit to ripen in me this day. I think my prayer might be something like, Spirit, may I bear a balanced fruit of faith that is memorable and compelling to those around me. That's how the fruit of the Spirit is designed to grow, by the way, together with a, with a unity and a wholeness and a balance, the perfect bite for a world that is starving for this kind of fruit fruit that is the very character of Christ. And as your pastor, I want to tell you something this morning. 
if your life is defined by an increasing measure of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, you've got a pretty awesome life. That's the life you want. You can buy all the self-help books you want. They're not going to get you to that place. That is what you want. I can't think of a better life for you or for me, one that is increasingly reflecting the character of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of life that is ultimately fulfilling for us, and it is ultimately compelling and appealing for the world around us. So I hope you catch a vision of this third way, this option between legalism and license, the option for striving towards Christ-likeness. For those of you who consider yourselves Christ followers today, it would be my prayer that this is the life of the Spirit that you would choose, that you would cultivate each and every day. For those of you who, who maybe haven't decided to follow Jesus Christ, I pray that you might find Christians in this place and in your life to be growing more and more towards Christ's likeness rather than deeper into legalism or license. We're only going to see this when we allow the Spirit to bear fruit in us. As Paul says, in verse 23, right after this list, he says, there is no law against such things. You can't legislate bearing fruit or make people behave this way. Fruit will grow out of who we are. Not because laws compel us to grow the fruit. So it's good and it's fair for us to ask this morning, what are we supposed to do with this fruit of the Spirit? If, this, if it's the Spirit that really causes this fruit to be born in our lives, what is our role and what are we supposed to do? Well, conveniently enough, Paul ends chapter 5 by answering that very question. And he answers it first with a no and then with a yes. Verse 24 is the no. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is pretty strong language. It's in the past tense. You've crucified the flesh. It's, it's, it's like Paul looking at the Galatians and saying, hey, brothers and sisters, this is what you committed to. When you cross that threshold of faith in Jesus Christ, this is what you committed to, that you would leave this behind and follow Christ instead. This is not to say that we don't have any sin in our lives. Of course we do. But Paul is reminding us that we need to continually say no to the flesh anything that is in opposition to the Spirit. This is part of God's grace for us, by the way, the grace that, that saves us, but also the grace that teaches us so that we might make wise decisions. Each and every one of us will have to decide what it means for us to say no to the flesh, to ungodliness, to the worldly passions. For me, this means that there are places that I shouldn't go, and there are things that I shouldn't look at, and there are relationships that I should not play around with. And there are words that should never come out of my mouth. And there are conversations that I should not join in on. And there are jokes that I should not laugh at. There are movies that I should not watch. And there are feelings that I need to suppress or pray away. For you, it might mean that there's business that you don't engage in, or parties that you don't go to, or attitudes to others that you choose not to hold, or boundaries that you set. That's not legalism, that's not law, that's self-discipline, that's life. Paul makes it clear that the threat to the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the flesh, or the fruit of the world. So we must make a daily practice of saying no to those things. 
But there is also a yes. Verse 25. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep step with the Spirit. The grammar here is pretty typical. Paul for grammar snobs, an indicative followed by an imperative or a statement followed by a command. Here's who you are, and because of who you are, here's what you should do. Paul does this all the time. He's affirming the Galatians. He's reminding them of who they are. You are children of God. You are children of the promise. You are living life in the Spirit. So, because of that, keep in step with the Spirit. Keep going each and every day. Say yes continually to the Spirit. The word for uh, keeping step actually has a, a military connotation. It's like a military march, like a battalion marching into battle. So imagine a battalion with, with a drum at the front and at the rear. Listen to the beat of the Spirit, the rhythm of the Spirit, and keep in step with the Spirit. It's a daily choice. Who's going to guide me today? Is it going to be the rhythm of the world, or is it going to be the rhythm of the Spirit? When we choose the Spirit, when we say yes to the Spirit, we're cultivating the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. One more thing that Paul doesn't explicitly say, but it's pretty clear to me from this text and from life as I see it. You will bear some kind of fruit. So examine your life. Maybe this is an encouraging thing for you. Maybe this is a dreadful exercise for you. Examine your life. Is your life being defined by increasing in the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Or is the fruit that increases in you jealousy and contempt and pride and avarice and suspicion and harshness and lack of control? Whatever fruit is increasing in your life is probably an indication of who we're allowing to guide our lives. If the Spirit is in us and, and we're willing to say no to the flesh and, and to say, yes, I want to stay in step with the Spirit each and every day, then we're going to increase in that fruit each and every day. If the fruit we see is things opposite of the fruit of the Spirit, it's an indicator that we're not giving the Spirit a control. That we're trying to do that ourselves. And this fits perfectly with Jesus' own words in John chapter 15. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide, stay in step with me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. So my friends, there's much for us to learn about the Holy Spirit. And we're going to do that in the weeks to come. But for today, let's remember that living in legalism or living out of license is going to leave us unfulfilled. And it's not going to produce a faith that is compelling to the world around us. But if we will daily say no to the way of the world and say yes to the way of the Spirit, the Spirit of God is going to bear its fruit in us, which will lead to the most fulfilling life that will also be compelling in every way to the world around us. So we'll end where we began, John Stott's prayer. Spirit, cause your fruit to ripen in my life.
I'm going to invite the musicians forward this morning. As a way of response, Paul and I, and, and as we were talking, we realized that once a month, maybe every other month, we do the Apostles' Creed together, which is sort of the, the heart of our common belief together. And there's one line about the Holy Spirit. Some of you know what it is. It's, I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's kind of all we say about the Holy Spirit in the Apostles' Creed. And so we thought as we go throughout the sermon series that it would be an interesting exercise for us to build our own little Hinsdale Covenant affirmation of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to add a line each week, and we're going to have an opportunity to say this together. This will be up on the screen for you, if we can get that up on the screen. I would invite you to speak this affirmation with me. I believe in the Holy Spirit, promised by God to be our helper, at work in us to bear fruit unto Christ's likeness. Why don't we stand?